This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized for your reading life. Want great new nonfiction books to read but are overwhelmed by all of the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and your dislikes and what you're looking for. Then sit back while a bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for literally any budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print a Bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat your shelf and support an indie poo. TBR is also available as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow writer Alice Burton. Recording this week's episode on Thursday, September 10th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Oh, I'm pretty good. How are you, Kim? You know, I am doing well, except that we're in a cold snap in Minnesota, so we have had to turn our heat in our house on. And uh, it feels very much like fall into winter, uh, and I am I'm sad about that. That's kind of not- okay. I have a question: mm-hmm. Are you an iced coffee drinker or like a like a hot coffee drinker? I do not drink coffee. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I drink tea, and I usually drink it hot. I'm not a huge iced tea person. Okay, well, that's that. Just you know what? That is the opposite of the yes and of improv, Kim. That's that's all I gotta say there. Just ends the conversation. No, uh, I feel like this is a thing because you know, ideally, perhaps one's temperature of beverage would change with the seasons. And I am very much like an iced coffee, three sixty five kind of person. It has been cold enough this week where I felt like I could finally justify drinking mm. hot coffee. But I like, I just. Okay, here's the thing. I think that I've convinced myself that by drinking iced coffee, I am adding to my water intake for the day, (laughs) despite my knowledge that coffee dehydrates you. Mm. But I'm still like, "Mm, there's ice in it, so... You're like offsetting it as the ice melts and it becomes more watery. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's my current reasoning, perhaps. (laughs) I feel like that kind of makes sense. Yeah, I drink hot tea basically all year round, which is weird in the summer, but it's fine. So that is nice that there's, you know, it's hot tea season more, but it's just, it feels like, so I guess I'm I'm kind of sad about it for two reasons. It feels like it's getting cold pretty fast and I would have liked a more long and mild fall. And then with COVID and everything that's happening in the world, I feel like this winter is going to just be really tough. You know, like it's going to be hard Mm. to get out and see people and do things. And so I'm not looking forward to that happening. And it feels like that's coming quicker than I want it to because I want it to stay nice as long as possible so that I can still like see people outside and kind of enjoy the spaces we can go safely, you know? Oh, that's a good point. So regular listeners of this podcast will know I am getting married this month. And 
yeah, we're kind of watching the weather because <laughs> mm-hmm. we're currently we're currently planning on being on kind of like a, a patio thing uh, just for better air circulation. And if it's very, very, very cold, then we're like, okay, or, you know, too rainy. Mm-hmm. We're going to be inside. But yeah, we'll see. It's September is a real crapshoot. September, know? October. It's, it's hard to know. It could be really nice, but it's just hard to tell. So that's where we're at. Uh, anything else for, for follow up this week? Uh. My mind is pretty focused on the wedding. I picked up my dress, <gasps> which was very, very exciting. It's all I'm done. I'm so excited. I'm disappointed I can't be there in person, but I am excited to attend a Zoom wedding. That feels like it's a good just 2020 thing to be able to to do. I'm delighted that at the very least you can watch on Zoom. Yes. Uh, again, listeners, Kim was invited to our in-person wedding when <laughs> before <laughs> COVID. Uh, but yeah, because such is the nature of our podcast friendship. Indeed. Um. Anyway, oh, we've got a we've got a sponsor. Yes, we do. Our first sponsor this week is the book TMI from the Chicago Review Press. So TMI is the story of how Mario Lavandera became Perez Hilton, the world's first and biggest celebrity blogger. With Perez's help, many promising young artists reach the masses. So people like Katy Perry, Adele, Amy Winehouse, and Lady Gaga, to name a few. So soon Perez became a Hollywood insider, but after a dramatic fallout with Lady Gaga, his blog became increasingly mean. When people called him a bully and a hypocrite for outing gay celebrities, he was forced to reevaluate not only his alter ego, but also himself. TMI reveals the man behind the blog in a new, revealing, and still juicy memoir. So in this memoir, you can learn about his modest beginnings, his rise to Hollywood fame, and all of the celebrity drama that went along with it. And perhaps most importantly, uh, in the book, he reflects on his biggest regrets and how he's become the person he wants to be. So that is TMI from Chicago Review Press. All right. And so with that, we're going to shift into our first uh, segment, which is nonfiction in the news. And I just have one tiny piece of news to share. And that is the announcement of the next winner of the Grey Wolf Press Nonfiction Prize. Uh, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I have really adored many of the Grey Wolf Press Nonfiction Prize winners. Esme Weijung Wang's This Collected Schizophrenia was one of my favorite books last year. That was a winner. Uh, the Empathy Exams by Leslie Jameson was another winner. Uh, and so this year's winner they just announced is Voice of the Fish by Lars Horn. So Voice of the Fish was selected out of more than 600 manuscripts and is a combination of personal essay, mythology, and marine history to explore the body, gender, sexuality, and trans masculinity. So in the book, he depicts experiences of traveling through Georgia and living in Russia as a queer and transmasculine person, modeling in baths. I think that book sounds great. I have loved many of those winners, and so I'm excited to see this one. Normally when they announce the prize, it takes a while for it to come out. This article we'll link to in LitHub doesn't have a specific date for this one, but I think it'll be great. So uh, that is Voice of the Fish by Lars Horn, winner of the Grey Wolf Press Nonfiction Prize. That sounds really good. It's always nice to find kind of a curated entity like Mm -hmm. that you trust you know what i mean so it's like i've never heard of this thing before but they liked it and i've liked the stuff they've liked so i'm probably gonna like yeah exactly i loved all the prize winners and so every time there's another one i get excited because it's usually just kind of in the alley of like interesting well-written kind of different nonfiction that i like to read so yeah that's cool all right so with that we will shift gears into our regular first segment which is new nonfiction books that are out now coming out soon uh that we are excited about or have read and can recommend so uh, alice you are first yes uh so if you've ever heard of caitlin moran she is really great um she had a really big book a number of years ago called how to be a woman 
which she's um British and her you know presence as like kind of a, a speaker, et cetera, uh, is bigger over in England. But um, How to Be a Woman, I think, also was pretty big here. So this is sort of her follow-up. She had another book called Moranthology, which I really liked, which is just a collection of her writings. And this is More Than a Woman by Caitlin Moran. So see, there's How to Be a Woman and then More Than a Woman. Okay, so NPR called it a a hilarious neo-feminist manifesto. I was trying to think about how to categorize her writing, and I was like, yeah, (laughs) that sounds about right. Um, She's, I don't know, she's just really fascinating. So in this book, what I really like of the way that she kind of establishes it is there's a prologue where her self from writing How to Be a Woman has like just finished writing it and she's like 35. And she's like, oh my gosh, I have a handle on life. Everything is great. I like, oh my gosh, I was an idiot in my 20s, but like, whew, I've really got it taken care of now. And then her from like right now comes back in time and is like, oh, (laughs) so this is, yeah, there's some stuff about to happen. And just talking about that as kind of a a look into then what it's like in your, I guess, like sort of mid-40s as a woman, like going into, uh, I think, all, not quite 50s, but she's in her 40s when she's writing this. So it's sort of like middle-aged woman-ness. And each chapter is split up into like the hour of. So there's the hour of the list. And she says like every woman has a list, which is basically like, you know, get the gutters cleaned, pick up this dress from the cleaners, like do, and then like, she was like, we never fully accomplished the list, (laughs) but the list is always there. And uh, that rang really true. She talks about like, what makes a good marriage, which I actually thought was really not quite like poignant, but she had some really good sort of parameters for how you choose someone uh, who was like the right person. And then uh, she goes into even stuff of like like housework and missing the children. And oh, one of my favorites is the hour of what about the men? <laughs> because, because this is right, like this is how she got famous is like this, uh, the way that she talks about feminism, which is very kind of I want to say vernacular, but it feels almost pretentious to call it a vernacular. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, like she does it in a very kind of just easy, chatty way, which is something that I really love about her writing. So she is essentially, if you really liked How to Be a Woman or if you're interested in what someone who has is like both reflecting on their career and their thoughts on feminism and how they've evolved, but is also very funny. I think this is a a great read, especially right now when we need more funny things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it's just sort of desperately needed. Um, So again, that is More Than a Woman by Caitlin Moran. Excellent. I'm glad you talked about that one. She, I remember reading How to Be a Woman and it's it's very funny. So I'm sure that this one is great as well. So my first pick is Having and Being Had by Eula Biss, uh, which is a book that comes out September 1st from Riverhead. Uh, and so Eula Biss is a previous, or an author that I have liked and read previously. Um, she's written four books. One of them, uh, I can't remember the title, was a Grey Wolf nonfiction prize winner. So I don't know, tie back to <laughs> previous podcast like seven minutes ago. Um, so her previous book that I read that I really liked is On Immunity, uh, which is a book about the myths and metaphors surrounding vaccination written from the perspective of a new mother. So she has a baby and then she writes about that experience and also about vaccinations and tries to kind of look at it from all sorts of different angles and understand kind of the culture and science and debate and all sorts of philosophy around all of that. So that I, I thought it was a really great book. 
It was big a few years ago when it first came out. So Having and Being Had is her newest book, and it is about affluence, consumption, and kind of what those things mean. So this book opens with her purchasing her first house and then goes on in these very short little essays to kind of look at all sorts of different things that happen when you buy a house, what it means to be a homeowner, and how that ties into different and bigger ideas that we all have about class and property and the ideas and demands of capitalism. So it sounds really heavy, and there are some kind of heavy bits in it, but it's very The essays are super short and they're really easy to read. And so you kind of pop one in and uh, kind of tells a story and then kind of thinks about some different things and connects it in some really creative and interesting ways. And then just kind of moves on to another topic or exploration. So it's really interesting. So the essay has everything from their stuff about going to Ikea, which I feel like we all can kind of relate to, like how weird it is to be in Ikea. Um, Beyonce, Pokemon, and then also looking at ideas about time and money and how we invest and spend both of those things in different ways and how those tie into consumption and capitalism and home ownership. So it's a bunch of ideas that just sort of like twist in and around each other in this really interesting way. But it's so easy to read because each of the essays is so short, you just kind of feel like, oh, I'll pick up one. And then all of a sudden, you've read four or five and kind of are marinating in all these different kinds of thoughts and ideas. So um, I really like it so far. It's really interesting. So that is Having and Being Had by Eula Biss. I love short essays. I do too. I do too. That's fantastic. So my next pick, I thought looked really interesting. And then I started reading it and I was like, "Ooh!" so it is What Can I Do? My Path from Climate Despair to Action by Jane Fonda. Now, if you also grew up in the 90s and had maybe conservative people around you, you probably heard Jane Fonda spoken of with some degree of scorn. Kim, I don't know what your... Did you have any references? I mostly know Jane Fonda from Grace and Frankie, which is a show on Netflix that she's in with Lily Tomlin. Uh, I don't know if I knew a lot, or if I had much of a reference for Jane Fonda before that. Oh, lucky you. Okay, so uh, when I was a teenager slash younger person, I feel like Jane Fonda was mostly talked about as, you know, kind of this bumbling activist who was on the wrong side in the Vietnam War, and generally just made a nuisance of herself, <laughs> which looking back was super sexist. <laughs> so Indeed. Indeed. Um, she has, I mean, I just watched this clip of her in, I believe it was the 70s, talking about LGBT rights and like in an extremely progressive way, which I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I you just didn't see that as much like mm-hmm. back then. So essentially Jane Fonda is awesome. At the very least, she is trying very hard to do the right thing, which is extremely admirable. So in this book, she was reading Naomi Klein's book on fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal, which we talked about on the podcast a while ago because it came out, I think, September of last year. And she was like, oh, my gosh, like this. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, climate crisis. And I realized that we are in the middle of a bunch of other crises. So maybe that has like slipped from people's minds. But it's still very uh, relevant to our life, like life on this earth. So when she says my path from climate despair to action, it was basically she read the book and she was like, oh my gosh, you know, as one might. And then she decided, okay, what can I do about this? And decided to start having this thing called Fire Drill Fridays, which was um, essentially a rally that she would have every Friday in DC as, as long as she was able to 
And what I love about how they established this was she legit, she stopped reading the book. She got this idea. She calls the head of Greenpeace and she is like, hey, so I'm going to do a thing. Uh, do what you guys want in on. <laughs> and she and, me, and the way that she writes it down is so cool because she talks about the background of how they designed Fire Drill Fridays. So she's like, we worked with this organization. We brought this organization in. We had these meetings. So you really see how that kind of thing comes together, which I thought was really fascinating. And then kind of uh, the way that she writes about it isn't like I did this and I did this. She uses the book to talk about all of these other activists and talking about especially young activists who are like in their teens, just leading the climate movement. And she has like all these photos of them and like quotes their speeches. And just like, I I was just very impressed um, with the way that she, I guess, sort of positions the conversation. And then each chapter, she talks about different aspects. So there's like oceans and climate change and women in climate change and plastics and jobs and like how we transition to um, essentially like getting rid of plastics and fossil fuels, right? Because that's a ton of jobs right there. And so how do we get those people to also still have jobs and make sure that people are still taken care of? She talks about for it. Like it's just every area that you can think of in terms of environmental justice, she covers it. and then. At the, you know, she gives you the steps that you can take. She talks about how, yeah, like national politics are important, but look to your representatives in your city and see if they support the Green New Deal. And if not, you know, write to them because that's like we start there and then go out. And that to me, when I read that, I was like, oh, that feels really doable. Like I can look at people in my local area who are in government and be like, do you support this? You should. 100% of the net proceeds from this book go to Greenpeace, which is also awesome. (laughs) So it's just, I I realize that I'm making this book sound like, ah, but I genuinely feel that way about it because I was like, I, I had felt paralyzed about the climate crisis, especially in the midst of everything else going on. And when I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, this feels like stuff I can do. And she also, like, she's just really personable. And she writes about, you know, her own life. And you're like, oh, it's Jane Fonda Um, (laughs) writing about stuff. So I just really recommend it. It's What Can I Do? My Path from Climate Despair to Action by Jane Fonda. That sounds really good. I That's a book that I don't know that I would have been, like, jazzed or or even really interested in picking up, except you talked about it so well and, like, made it sound so interesting and identified a lot of the things that I think maybe would have been, like, pitfalls for me that the book doesn't go that way. So yeah, that sounds really good. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, my next pick is a memoir. It's called Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother and American Daughter by Lan Cow and Harlan Margaret Van Cow, uh, which comes out September 15th from Viking. Uh, And so this is a dual memoir. So it is, uh, Lan Cow is a Vietnamese American novelist and Harlan Van Cow is her daughter her teenage daughter. And so the memoir is told in alternating chapters from each of their perspectives. So uh, Lin Cao is a refugee from Vietnam. In 1975, uh, when Vietnam was falling, she her family had her leave Saigon and come to the United States as a refugee, except 
she didn't know that she thought she was coming to the United States for a visit. And then uh, when she got here, she discovered that actually her family expected her to stay with uh, relatives who lived in the United States. And so she goes from her life in Vietnam as a teenager to living with a family she doesn't really know. She doesn't speak English well. She doesn't understand the food or the culture or anything and sort of is dropped into this. And so the her sections of the book are about growing up as a refugee, about the, the violence and the effect that that had on her family, about how that uh, 1975 and the Vietnam War continues to affect Vietnamese refugees into the United States and around the world today, um, and how she kind of overcame all of those things to become a lawyer and a novelist, and then about the birth of her daughter and how that has affected and changed her. So her daughter is a teenager. I think she's uh, in her 20s that's uh, writing this book now. And so she is writing about being an American teenager who has um, a mother from Vietnam and what all of that was like. Her father, so Lanko's husband, died when Harlan was 16. And so that experience affects both of them deeply and it affects their relationship because they were very close before that. Um, they both kind of write about being very protective of each other and Harlan writes about sort of wanting to spread her wings a little bit with her mother, who's also very protective. And so when their husband and father dies, that kind of affects how they interact with each other. Um, and she also writes as a young person about how the effects of the Vietnam War and the trauma that it caused her family kind of trickles down and also continues to affect her. And so it is a book that speaks to uh, the struggles that refugees face, but also the kind of relationship that mothers and daughters can have and that can be like loving and contentious and all of that. And I, I think the writing in it is really beautiful. They both have very distinct voices, and so it's easy to understand kind of who you're talking or who you're spending time with. But I like the way it's positioned as a dual memoir because each perspective gives you kind of a view of the other person. So you're getting their own thoughts about themselves, but then you're getting somebody else's perspective on who they are. And I think that makes a really rich kind of experience and a rich kind of understanding of a story because you're kind of getting at these people from multiple angles and their stories from different ways. So um, I really like this one. I think it's a, a good one, especially if you are a person who has a complicated potentially relationship with your mother, it might be an interesting one to pick up as well. So that is Family in Six Tones, A Refugee Mother and American Daughter by Lan Cow and Harlan Margaret Van Cow. Can you imagine as a teenager being unexpectedly dropped into a new country no. and just be like, you're living here now? No. No, that's <laughs> – it's bonkers. I mean, being 16 or like a teenager girl was just hard enough. Like <laughs> having a completely yeah. normal childhood, it was hard enough. Like I can't – I cannot even imagine. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm just like remembering how stressed I was in France and I speak French relatively fluently. And I was only there for like five weeks. And I constantly was like, oh gosh, because I'm not actually like fluent, fluent. Everyone is going to be annoyed with me all the time. And it was like, gosh, yeah, that sounds really hard. Oh, I am delighted by my next pick. It is <laughs> Bringing Back the Beaver, the story of one man's quest to rewild Britain's waterways by Derek Gow. Oh, this book is like a breath of fresh air, let me tell you. So if you're at all into nature books, if you like funny stories that also maybe involve beavers. Um, this would be one for you. I was literally laughing out loud while reading this. It was because of a story about some beavers who escaped. And <laughs> it was just like, oh gosh. Anyway, um, it's funny because it's all about essentially there were no beavers in England. They were just gone because they had killed them all. They were classified, I think, as pests or some kind you know mm -hmm. basically like you could get rid of them and 
when they were talking about bringing them back, because they had been slowly brought back throughout like other countries in Europe, a lot of different groups in England were like, no. And you're like, well, but why? They're beavers. Like, they're, <laughs> you know, they're supposed to be there. And they would, you know, like farmers thought that it would screw up how they were like laying out the land. And then these other groups were like, that's going to mess with like how we have like our so basically mess with our profits. Everyone was concerned about losing money because of beavers, which is kind of funny. But this one naturalist, the author, Derek Gao, who the intro is very like, oh, Derek annoys everyone, but he gets things done. And <laughs> in the actual book, he is very forthright, very funny. And he just raises a lot of random animals at his farm and then reintroduces them to the wild. So he like brought water voles back, which I I think it's like a kind of like weasel or something. I think so. Like in that mm -hmm. family. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, but he was like, I'm going to bring back the beaver. And so he and like this other group and just the way they talk about it again, it's so funny, but it's also so interesting because you learn all about like the effect that beavers have and how they really help the landscape. Like one of the things they talked about was wetlands can just get really silty unless people come in to basically like fix it. And they were like, well, wait, how did this happen before we were here to like, you know, unsilt it? And it was that beavers would build dams. And, like, they would basically take care of it and make sure that the wetlands just stayed with, like, water running and stuff. And I just thought that was so interesting. So, if again, if you want, like, a really hilarious story that's got some animals bringing back the beaver, the story of one man's quest to rewild Britain's waterways by Derek Gow. That sounds genuinely delightful. That sounds so great. It's so good. <laughs> oh, good pick. Um, I just have one more really quick pick. Um, this is a book that I haven't gotten to read or look at at all, but uh, Alice, you reminded me about it this week, and I was like, dang, why did I not talk about this one already? Because it sounds amazing, and I want to get it real, real soon. So the book is Here She Is, The Complicated Reign of the Beauty Pageant in America by Hilary Levy Friedman, uh, which came out August 25th from Beacon Press, and it is a American feminist history through the lens of the beauty pageant world, which sounds fascinating. So um, part of the reason this book is out is because the Miss America pageant celebrates its 100th anniversary in 2020, which somehow that like is shocking to me. Like it feels like it's been going on much longer than that and also much shorter than that for some reason. Yeah. So she in the book looks at how beauty pageants have been connected to many of the biggest achievements of the feminist movement, um, talks at the history of pageants from sort of a spectacle related to P.G. Barnum to how like pageantry has made its way into shows like The Bachelor and RuPaul's Drag Race and looks also at the damaging expectations pageants can create and then the ableist and racist history of Miss America and other pageants like that. So feminist history of beauty pageants sounds kind of fascinating. So that is Here She Is, The Complicated Reign of the Beauty Pageant in America by Hilary Levy Friedman. Oh, I will say as a PS to that, I've read a little bit of it and she's kind of got into it because her mom was Miss America. Oh, that's interesting too. And then she became an academic, but she was like, oh, I'm going to like research beauty pageants, <laughs> which I think is so nice. That is. That's fun. Um, so our second sponsor for the episode is Book Riot Insiders. Are you an insider? They didn't tell me to write that, say that, but I feel like you guys should be. Okay, the digital hangout spot for the Book Riot community. This is what Book Riot Insiders is. If you have not heard about it before, or if you would like some more details now, I am here to give them to you. You can enrich your reading life. 
with our Book Riot Insider's perks. We have three levels. So there is a short story, novel, and epic. And you can try any level out free for two weeks. So, you know, just like dawdle around on the site for the first week, be like, do I like it? Get maybe more into it in the second week. It's all free. Uh, The highlight is our new group read hosted online. It's available to all Epic members. So every quarter we'll read a book voted on by Epic subscribers that will fulfill at least one task of the 2020 Read Harder Challenge and cap off our read along with a live chat. So you get to talk to other book lovers about this book that you all read or read part of. Who knows? Insiders also get access to our new release index so they can keep track of upcoming releases they're most excited about, exclusive podcasts, bookish merch deals, and more. Head to insiders.bookriot.com to start your free two-week trial. So the exclusive podcasts uh, I just recorded, uh, so the podcast is remixed, and so they take podcast hosts from different podcasts and have them do a podcast together. That was a lot of podcasts in one sentence. Sorry. And so I just did my remix podcast and we talked about beverages. So we talked about uh, non-alcoholic beverages and then alcoholic beverages for about 45 minutes and it was real fun. So did you talk about like Orbit from the 90s or are you talking about current current beverages? beverages, Current beverages. Got it. So that was very exciting. All right. So uh, now we will shift gears into our main segment of the week, which uh, this week we decided to do something that's a little bit evergreen, uh, which is talk about books and movies. So nonfiction books that have been turned into movies or perhaps vice versa. And yeah, just get into that a little bit. So uh, my first pick for this one is a book that and a movie that I have talked about both uh, before on the podcast, but I finally watched the movie and I was like, now I got to talk about it again because it was great. So that is Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption by Brian Stevenson, uh, which I feel like I have talked about a bunch of times. Like it might be this might be the last time I'm allowed to talk about it on the podcast. So uh, this is a memoir. Uh, Brian Stevenson was a young lawyer just fresh out of law school when he founded an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative, which is a legal practice uh, dedicated to defending people who are in need, who don't have legal representation. So people who are poor, wrongly condemned, women and children who are sort of stuck in the throes of the justice system. So uh, he, one of his very first cases after he founded the Equal Justice Initiative was of a man named Walter McMillan, who was sentenced to death for a murder in a small town, but it is a murder that he insisted that he did not commit. So he, at the time, he was on death row, and Stevenson took his case and was going to try and get him off of death row after just kind of discovering that the whole case was just completely inaccurate and corrupt and not convincing at all. So uh, the case becomes very complicated very quickly. It's in Alabama, and so there are conspiracies and politics at play and legal brinkmanship. And... Uh, That case is sort of the backbone of the memoir, while he also talks a lot about other issues in the criminal justice system that affect primarily black and brown people, the poor, and that kind of thing. And so he uses the Walter McMillan case and many of his other cases to get at those. So um, I read the memoir a few years ago. It's incredible. If you haven't read it, you should absolutely pick it up. It really is a nice first-person account of a man working within the legal system, but also gives a really good overview, I think, of some of the big systemic issues that he's fighting against in some of his individual cases. So I really liked that. The book was made into a movie last year, uh, starring Michael B. Jordan as Brian Stevenson and then Jamie Foxx as Walter McMillan. And so I finally watched it this week, and it's a really great movie. 
you know, it's a good kind of biopic movie. So it's got some of the flaws of that genre. But um, overall, it's great. I thought the acting was excellent. Michael B. Jordan is great. Jamie Foxx is very, very compelling. Um, they have some other supporting characters that I just were, were so good. And I was so moved by it. I think the movie doesn't get into quite as much detail and sort of contextualizing the bigger issues that are around Macmillan's story. So some of the systemic stuff that he gets at in the memoir. But you know, at this point, like there's so much of that going on in the world right now. I don't know that the movie really needs to get into it. Like you can watch the movie and understand what is happening behind the scenes and off the page in some ways. But I also was really, I really enjoyed um, the visuals that go with the movie. I think some of the visuals that they used really did a lot of work in trying to kind of share some of that systemic issues. There's one early in the movie where Michael B. Jordan or Brian Stevenson is going to go to a jail near where he's working to meet with his first clients. And as he's driving up to the jail, there's a a guard on a horse with a gun and there's a bunch of prisoners all chopping down um, weeds and stuff in a field outside of the prison. And it very much gives you a visual like a slave plantation. And that really implies a lot about some of the bigger issues. And I there's a lot of visuals like that in the movie that I really appreciated too. So I thought it was a great movie. It's a great book. I think I would definitely recommend both. So that is Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption by Brian Stevenson. I really want to read it's that. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Um, also, you can talk about it as many times as you want on this podcast. Because it's our podcast. <laughs> I feel like at some point people are going to be like, ugh, stop talking about that. I get it. I should read it. <laughs> um, my uh, first pick is A Royal Affair, George III and His Scandalous Siblings by Stella Tilliard. Uh, the movie is A Royal Affair. So I started watching this movie just because it there was like a lady in period clothes <laughs> on the front. And I was like, perfect. And it was, um, I think, Alicia Vikander. Who then, like, she's gone on to do a bunch of things in America. But it is uh, a foreign film. And it's super, super good. So it's basically about, so George III, King of England, it's the late 1700s. And he had all of these siblings. And he kind of was, he behaved like this patriarchal figure towards them. And felt like, like a lot of them just kind of made bad decisions. And he would behave like he was their father. And they were like, you don't rule my life, dad. Except he did. So the center of the book is his sister, Caroline Matilda, probably pronounced Carolina Matilda or something, but we're not saying that. So Caroline Matilda um, was married against her will at age 15 to the King of Denmark, who uh, the King of Denmark was having some problems. But so she goes there, she's miserable living in Denmark, and she starts having this affair with a court doctor named Johann Friedrich Strunzi, and he was a German physician who had been sort of, he befriended Christian VII of Denmark and was brought into um, the Danish government. And so he starts having an affair with this queen. And as Christian VII, who was suffering from a mental illness, he started basically ignoring ruling the country. Like, he just was off on his own, like in his chambers, whatever, not doing anything uh, in terms of government. And so Strunzi got more and more power as he was having the affair with Caroline Matilda, and they 
basically instituted a bunch of reforms being like abolition of torture, uh, abolition of sla- the slave trade in the Danish colonies, um, getting rid of noble privileges and like prefer the practice of preferring nobles for state offices. And just like a bunch of things. Oh, he stopped the death penalty for theft. Like all these things where you're like, oh my gosh, that's so good. Oh, and he stopped all like all censorship. So he was like, we're gonna have a free press. And then everyone started printing pamphlets about how much they didn't like him, which feels really rude. (laughs) That's hilarious. That's so funny. Yeah. So, and it just, I feel like it makes sense. Um, So eventually, though, he gets arrested and executed because, of course, he does. He's trying to do a nice thing. And it's just a really fascinating story that when you hear about George III, you just, this is not a well-known thing, right? You think about, like, him and he, like, slowly uh, succumbed to his own, like, mental illness and, or whichever disease, I don't know which disease he had, but basically George III, right, ends up having to have his son rule and he loses America to the Americans. And that's, like, the main thing we know about his family. But meanwhile, there's this whole thing going on in Denmark with his sister. So, anyway, I just thought this book was really interesting. And the movie's really good. So, it is, again, A Royal Affair by Stella Tilliard. That sounds excellent. That's a good pick. I was just looking up the movie, like, poster. And, yeah, it is, like, people in period dress looking very dramatic. So, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, the next book and movie pair I want to talk about uh, is, well, okay. So I want to talk about E. Pray Love, One Woman's Search for Everything Across Italy, India, and Indonesia by Elizabeth Gilbert, which is a book that I had never read and a movie that I had never seen. And we decided we were going to do this podcast. And I got it in my head that I'm like, this book came out in 2007. And I was curious if it held up still or if all of the things that have happened since then have sort of made the book not seem relevant anymore. But also I know that lots, like so many people have read this book and watched this movie. I want to say like the book sold like 10 million copies or something like that. Um, So it's a big book that I had just never read. And so I thought this might be an interesting kind of thing to to do for that. So I guess the trigger warning for this one um, that I wasn't expecting because I sort of had this idea that the book was this like very light, rompy kind of book about her like traveling around the world. But there's a lot in the first section um, about her depression and suicidal thoughts that um, are a little bit jarring to me. So I want to put that out there. But so um, Elizabeth Gilbert, uh, the premise of this book is that she uh, starts to go through this very um, contentious and dramatic divorce. Uh, She's very unhappy. She is struggling with her faith. She is struggling kind of in all areas. And so she pitches the idea of traveling around the world. Um, She wants to go to Italy for four months where she's going to learn Italian and explore ideas about pleasure. She's going to go to India for four months and live in an ashram and explore ideas about devotion. Then she's going to go to Bali for four months and explore ideas about balance and how to bring those two ideas together. So she uh, pitches this idea and it is accepted as a book. She gets a book advance of like $200,000 and that helps advance helps pay for her trip around the world. And so she spends a year traveling and exploring and coming, finding herself in these different areas. And so, yeah, I really liked the book, actually. I wasn't sure that I was going to, like, I just didn't know, um, given sort of, I feel like a lot of the just impressions people have about it. I feel like people are very, like, can't have, I've gotten a lot of negative reactions to the book. And so I wasn't sure that I was going to like it, but I actually did. I thought it was fun. 
I thought the movie was just meh. Like, I wasn't a huge fan. So I'm mostly talking about the book because I think the movie kind of is just... It's a rom-com, but I think it misses out on some of the interesting parts of the book. So on the pro side, I thought the book was very funny. Elizabeth Gilbert has a really fun sense of humor, and that is something that just does not come across in the movie really at all. And so I, it was fun to look, to go on these kind of adventures with her. And she's pretty, I think, self-aware about the privilege that she's bringing to a lot of this stuff and how some of this sounds a little bit woo and goofy. And I think she knows that and brings that into the, the book. So I think her writing is really excellent. You, you just kind of fall into it and go along. And so part of the reason I also wanted to read this is I really like her fiction. And I think her nonfiction has the same kind of really beautiful writing. Um, and this book, I, it was just like an easy read. Like it felt like a book that you would want to take on vacation or on the beach or something like that and just kind of enjoy because it's not super heavy, really. Some of the cons, I would say, uh, the middle part where she's at the ashram drags a bit. Like that is the part where I got a little like, oh, okay, let's move along here. I think she has a really limited view of all some of the places she visits, both because she doesn't, in the ashram in particular, she doesn't leave for four months. And so she really doesn't see a lot. And she relies on some stereotypes in different places. And it feels kind of shallow. Um, but I also don't know that like in-depth travelogue was really the point of the book. So I don't know. There we go. And I think... She also kind of glosses over some of the bad things that were happening in her own life. And so I wish that she had put more of some of those in it because I think those parts are interesting. But yeah, so I I can see why people <laughs> would not like this book, but I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, I read it over Labor Day weekend and it was just like a good vacation-y kind of book. I, the movie was just okay. And I, I don't know that unless you're like bored on a Saturday and just want something to do. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily recommend that, but I like the book. So Eat, Pray, Love, One Woman's Search for Everything Across Italy, India, and Indonesia by Elizabeth Gilbert. I'm glad that you addressed the whole privilege part of it because that's mm -hmm. been a bit, I haven't read this, nor have I seen the movie, um, but partially because when it came out and it was really big, I was just really annoyed by it possibly a little bit in like a reflexive way of like oh it's really popular and it's this lady <laughs> just trying to find herself whatever uh it, which hopefully i've grown out of to some degree but the impression lingers mm -hmm. so um is she like how does she address the whole privilege part of I it i think she she just kind of says it right at the beginning she's like the reason i got to do this is because i got a book advance and that is helping for how to do this and she just kind of says that up front and doesn't really try to hide it and so that is part of it i think as she is traveling she talks a lot about how grateful she is for those opportunities she tries to help others in situations where she can so she's not she's not digging into it super hard but she at least acknowledges it i think that's something. Yeah. The other thing I, I forgot to say that I also thought about, I think some of the reaction that you had and some of that negative stuff, I also think there's a little bit of like the woman finding herself part of it. I've seen that criticism of the book and the stuff too. And I think there's a little bit of sexism embedded into that because like dudes have been going off and like finding themselves since like Walden, you know? And so this book about a woman who kind of decides like I'm taking myself out of the things that I'm expected to do and going on this journey, particularly like the first part to just experience pleasure and joy. I think there's something powerful about that and how it kind of pushes back against what a lot of what we're expected to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's a very valid observation. I, I want to say that I'm also very annoyed about men's journeys to find themselves. <laughs> oh, I wasn't saying you were sexist. I just think that I've seen other... You can say it. No, that that's isn't fine. what I meant. That isn't what I meant. I, I've seen other <laughs> criticism that is in that in that area that I think there's a little bit of sexism embedded in it, but not that you are particularly. 
I mean, it's very possible that that is part of, right, like an an internalized misogyny. Mm-hmm. If we just even approach it from that, of, of seeing like that kind of thing as trivial because it's women doing it. I think that it's, in my case, it might be more of this whole like, again, 90s cynical anti-hippie ah. type of thing, <laughs> um, which again, I'm trying to overcome because it's 2020. But um, it's, it's difficult sometimes to get past your roots. It is. Um, my other pick is The Orchid Thief, which the movie is adaptation. So The Orchid Thief is by Susan Orlean, and it is about this rare ghost orchid and this sort of search for it and to, cl- well, not to search for it they know where it is, but to clone it. Um, and it's mainly centered around this man, John LaRoche, and how he is just like weird. <laughs> Like, if you read the book, Susan Arlene is really fascinated by him and his uh, journeys through the, it's the Everglades, right? Or is it just a different forest? Yeah. It's going through the, so they like go through the Everglades and he's like showing her orchids and he shows her where the ghost orchid is. And then he just takes her to different orchid breeders. And you just, Susan Arlene is really good at getting nerdy about something because other people are fascinated by it so she gets fascinated by it which i love and so here it's orchids and she just makes them really interesting whereas like normally i would not care about them they also are like a weird alien plant and she explains why and they're just not like anything else uh which i did not know prior to reading it now the movie adaptation is about the process of trying to adapt the book which is so it's uh by charlie kaufman and it's basically it's based on the book but it's also about his experience trying to adapt the book into a screenplay but he has writer's block and he's like he can't figure out how to do it so it's it's very um do you call that meta Mm -hmm. i always feel like i'm going to misuse meta great okay so it's a very meta experience and uh meryl streep's in the movie so if you're like me trying to tick off a bunch of meryl streep movie checkboxes in your quest to watch all her films uh that's one for the list but yeah i think that i think it's really interesting as a way to pause it because yeah if someone told me i'm gonna try to make a movie off of the orchid thief i'd be like okay (laughs) (laughs) like that's a choice um and you know the movie was pretty talked about when it came out in i want to say the early 2000s i think it's around then but anyway um but i do definitely recommend the book the orchid thief it's just uh, i would say a non-fiction classic at this point and oh and that's it for for books Turned into movies? Is that the reverse thing? <laughs> that is. So now we will close out the podcast as we normally do by talking about the books that we are reading right now at this very moment. So the book that I am going to pick up next, I haven't quite started it, is called Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy by Margaret Sullivan. Uh, so Margaret Sullivan is a media critic, and this book is about how uh, democracy suffers when local news dies. So it's looking at the trend of the closure of print newspaper outlets across the United States and around the world and about what that means when there are local areas that have no press of any kind and how a lot of corruption and misconduct to happen in various places. So uh, the book is only like 100 pages long. So it's really kind of like an extended essay printed and it's from Columbia Global Reports. 
So yeah, it's just kind of like this really little slim extended essay looking at kind of the crisis of local journalism, which is something that I'm really interested in because I used to be a local newspaper uh, editor and I'm fascinated by kind of how that industry is fascinated is not exactly the word. I'm sad and dismayed about that and I would like to learn more about it. So Ghosting the News, Local Journalism and the Crisis of American Democracy by Margaret Sullivan. Oh, that's good. And very specific, as you said, to your mm-hmm. field. My very specific book that I am reading (laughs) is Witchfinders, a 17th century English tragedy by Malcolm Gaskill. Uh, I would recommend this book if you are into, um, if you're kind of like a a history nerd, like if you're kind of vaguely into history, this is probably too much because it's academic, but it's essentially in the 1640s, you have the English Civil War, and coincidentally, they decided that there were witches everywhere and uh, there were a lot of witch trials in England. So there were these people called Witchfinders. Um, two of them were Matthew Hopkins and John Stern, and they basically went on this tour of Suffolk and East Anglia, um, looking out for demons and idolaters and witches. And it's a lot of if you're just like, oh, salacious details, like witch stuff. It's again, it's like pretty <laughs> academic and nerdy. It's more like here's the background of the English Civil War, and here's what was going on with Puritans at the time. So, which I really love. Um, but, uh, I don't know if everyone would, if, if the name Witchfinder sounds familiar to you, it's because there is a character named Witchfinder Sergeant Shadwell in Good Omens, which is, um, so that title is based on this 17th century kind of time where they, they in fact had people named Witchfinders. I think it's funny because the character in Good Omens is descended from Witchfinder, thou shalt not commit adultery, Pulsifer. <laughs> Which, like, his first name is Thou Shall Not Commit Adultery. It's funny. Uh, Anyway, so, yeah, again, that is Witchfinders by Malcolm Gaskill. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And our amazing audio editing is done, as always, by the amazing... And if you feel so inclined, please take a minute to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Ukara. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.